Texas with episode 389. Yeah, 389 times, folks, we've gotten together on this show. <clears throat> and we've talked about anything and everything that we could that has to do with self-sufficiency, self-reliance, survival, emergencies, disaster, preparedness, self-defense, home security, you name it. And we're going to keep doing that because I believe that these things are important. And I believe that if we institute them, we're not just being prepared for challenging times. We're actually improving our lives on a daily basis. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, today I'm going to talk to you about the things that you should be doing right now in your garden because I know that it, it kind of feels like spring in parts of the south, but it's not quite yet. And I know that up north you still have places where the ground is frozen solid. If you put a shovel into the ground, it won't even go in because it's, it's just like ice. And uh, I know that Snow Hurricane uh, 2010 just ended in the northeast. I know that a week ago I had uh, almost an inch of snow in my backyard. It didn't last very long. I know... A week before that, a week and a half before that, I had 10 inches of snow in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. So I know it feels like winter. Uh, yesterday it was cold, windy, rainy, nasty out all day long in the 40s with no sunshine. I know it still feels like winter. But the spring thaw is coming and spring planting time is coming. For me, it's coming fast. Our average last frost date in uh, this area is March 15th. Uh, last year we had frost out into May, though. In fact, we even had, yeah, into May. So anywhere things can change. So we'll talk about that a little bit today, too. But what I'm going to do is give you ten things that I think you should be doing right now. In fact, some of them you should have already done to get ready for spring planting and get ready to make 2010 the best year ever for your backyard or your piece of land or wherever it is that you're gardening and growing things so that you don't have to be dependent on the food distribution system. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, is take care of our sponsors because they do a lot to make sure the show is here every day for you. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal. Uh, everything you could possibly need for your disaster planning, for your prepping, for your food storage, they've got it, and they, they make it easy to do business with them through the Safe Castle Royal discount uh, membership program, uh, which is $29 for lifetime discounts for, uh, for Safe Castle. That's a great deal in of itself, but folks, if you join my members brigade, I'll tell you about in a second, you get that for free, and again, it's a lifetime membership. But I do want you to check out Save Castle if you haven't checked out their site before. They have so many really great selections. Uh, I'm really happy to have them as a sponsor. Um, next up today is MERS-radio.com. Again, MERS, M-U-R-S-radio.com. Um, MERS is, is really a unique technology. What it is is open... Uh, no license required, uh, two-way radio frequencies. Uh, so you can get a couple of these things that have additional communications around your property. Uh, there's a lot of uh, sub-frequencies within each frequency. There's, there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, reasonable, not uh, secure uh, communications with MERS. But the other thing is you can actually take and add security um, 
features with your MERS. Uh, what I have are motion detectors kind of in my backyard and my front uh, entrance areas where if anybody or anything moves around them, uh, I get an alert, alert sector one, alert sector two. It's really cool to be able to combine security and secondary communication, so I recommend you check them out. Remember, the best way to find all our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com or the survivalpodcast.com, depending on what part of the world you're from. And uh, all of our sponsors have banners going down the right-hand margin of the site. Going forward today, I want to remind you about something that uh, I should have talked about more, but I haven't talked about recently, and that is Survival Quarterly Magazine, which is a magazine that Ron Hood is putting out. Uh, the first issue is out, but if you subscribe, you'll still get the first issue for now. Um, it's a pretty amazing magazine. I'm really proud to be part of it. My article's featured in the first edition uh, on planning versus paranoia for modern survivalists. It is very, very well done. It is very content-rich for a first edition. I think that as this magazine moves forward, it's going to become more and more content-rich and become bigger and better. Uh, I really think you should check it out, and uh, there's links. Every podcast I've done for the past few months has had a link to it. Uh, so if you go to any of the show notes, you're likely to find that. But it's at survivalq.com. Survivalq.com is the way to find it. Check that out. And if you, if you, if you, uh, if you know, if you're not financially strapped or anything, uh, I, I do me a favor and subscribe. Support this. This is a brand new venture. Ron stuck his neck way out there to go into uh, a new business venture at a time like this. And, you know, I think it's $24 a year to subscribe. And I think you'll definitely get your money's worth. And it'd be a personal favor to me to help support Ron's work. Uh, last but not least, uh, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And you'll be supporting the show at $0.20 cents an episode. Uh with $5 a month or $50 a year as your contribution. Uh, one side note on the MSB. If you ever want to cancel your account and you can't figure out how to do it, just email me. Don't, don't report me to PayPal, okay? If somebody did that yesterday, it really drove me crazy because uh, I would have solved every problem that she had if she had just told me about it. So if you ever have any issues with uh, your MSB account, uh, I don't care if it's canceling, I don't care if it's getting charged wrong, which I don't think that ever actually happens, but if anything is wrong with your MSB account, you can't access it, email me straight away, and I will help you as soon as possible, unless I'm on vacation, in which case I will help you as soon as I get back. All right, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, again, I want to talk to you about gardening today, but gardening for now. It's March 2nd. It's cold. It's windy. There's snow on the ground. What can we do with gardening right now? Well, one of the first things that you should be doing for your garden planning, and I think most people never take this step, and I think it's really an important one, and it's one that I want you to start working on today because it will cost you zero dollars, and it will give you an immense amount of creativity uh, as to what you can plan going forward, and that's to make a sketch of your property. And I mean every major structure on your property. If there's a pool, draw it in. Uh, it, it, you draw your house sheds, not every tree, not every bush, but large trees and bushes that create shade, obviously any water features. And for those of you in suburbia, which is the majority of you, you probably want to draw in um, your neighbor's houses, um, fence lines, and things like that, and especially uh, how the ones that create either windbreaks or shade on your property, large trees in your neighbor's yard you probably want to include. The best way to do this is with graph paper because you can make things close to scale. You don't need to be a cartographer for this, folks. I'm, you know, a professional map drawer. But you do, if you get it a little bit close to scale, you know, if you just kind of 
paints your yard and decide that, you know, one step is one grid square or, you know, five steps is one grid square on your graph paper, however you want to make the scale work out, and you do it rough to scale, it'll be a lot more functional for you. Uh, I said it wouldn't cost you any money. What if you don't have graph paper? You might have to go to somewhere and buy some pad of graph paper. Hey, I'm going to hook you up today. You can get graph paper online for free and print it out. So I'll even put a link to you for that. So you have zero excuses, and you can change the scale of the graph. Uh, before you print it out. So I'm going to give you that free resource. So do this. But the big thing on it is I don't just want, you know, you to draw a map and put garden in a square and put it, that's there. That's where it's going to be. Before you even do that, if you don't already have a garden spot, I want you to map your energy flows and your shadows. And your, and we need to start out with your energy flows to understand the shadows. Okay, because right now you look at how shadows lie during the day, and but that's that's March. It's not what it's going to look like in June. The shadow patterns will be totally different in June. They'll be totally different in September. So the two big things you need to map first, once you have the basic outline of your site done, is you need to put a, a pathway for your winter sun. Now understand that your winter sun is much lower than your sun is right now, but your winter sun is basically going to go low on the south side of your property, okay? Now, if you're in the southern hemisphere and you're an international listener, you have to flip things around a little bit here. But for everybody here in North America, low in the southern sky. In the summertime, your solar pathway is going to go almost directly overhead. And, of course, it's going to flow east to west. And if you look at just the pattern of the sun, you'll be able to see the major predominant shade effects both morning midday, and afternoon of the structures in your backyard. That'll start to help you kind of figure things out. And you're going to keep, you know, amending this sketch and making new ones throughout the year because you can go out right now and look at the shadows at 8 o'clock in the morning, noon, uh, and 4 o'clock in the afternoon and draw the actual shadows, right? Okay, well, in June you could do the same thing. And in September you can do the same thing. So you can get to a point where you know the shadow patterns. So drawing shadow maps is important, but right now you just need to get a rough idea of them if you haven't done this before, but make sure you're putting the two solar pathways in there. The next thing I want you to think about is where does the wind predominantly come from on your property? All right, and Obviously you need to mark north, south, east, and west on your map as well. It's very important because a lot of the other energy flows are going to come off of that. So where does the wind predominantly come from in the winter? Where does it predominantly come from in the summer? You probably know this even if you think you don't. Stand out on your deck right now. You'll probably get a good indication of where the winter winds primarily come from. And then think about summertime when you're out there and you're being annoyed by a breeze. What direction does it predominantly come from? And do they switch? A lot of places like here, we get a heavy wind um, in, in the mornings, when, when the air does move in the summertime, we get a relatively good wind out of the west. But a lot of times once the sun goes down, we get the wind out of the east. Well, why? It's just the heat creating the wind flow. It's warmer where the sun is. So in the morning, the sun is in the east, and that heat over there is drawing the cold air out of the west, and it pushes back and forth. And those summer winds, unless you have hot, sustained winds, are not really that important. But the winter winds are hugely important if you want to try to extend your growing season. You need to know where they are, because then you can plan to block them. What I want you to start thinking about as you're drawing this sketch is even the things I'm not talking about. Everything on your property you need to start seeing as an energy flow. 
And I don't mean some weird hippie-esque, you know, metaphysical energy flow. I mean energy. Sun, wind, rain, the movement of water, plant energies. All right? What I mean by plant energies are that a plant grows, and when it grows, it gets taller. As it gets taller, it casts a shadow. That shadow becomes a negative energy. Not negative it is, is in a bad energy, but is in we have solar energy, and now we have shade energy, which is obstructing the solar energy, creating a cool spot. That cool spot is bad for some plants and good for others. So start seeing everything on your property as an energy. And every time you identify new energy on your property, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I want to invite this energy in, or do I want to push this energy out? Does this energy help the system I'm working with, or is it damaging to the system I'm working with? And again, I know what people, some people when they hear energy, they think about chi, and I'm not putting that stuff down, I'm just saying that's not what I'm talking about here, because I know it, it also kind of repels some people. They don't like to have those kind of weird, but this is, this is pure energy, the way I would say that your car uses energy to go down the road. So start thinking about them that way as you build your map. Um, I also think this is a great time for you to pick a few edible perennials to make a go with this year in your garden. Pick more than one. Pick at least three. One of them probably won't make it. You'll probably be sure it's going to make it. It'll probably die. So if you pick three, you'll end up with one or two next year that come back. But by perennial, I mean is a plant type that comes back year after year after year. Now, here's what I want you to resist the temptation to do. You go out and buy an apple tree or a peach tree or an apricot tree, stick it in the ground, and go, that's my perennial. It is, but it's a tree, and it's not what I mean. When I say perennial, I'm talking about something that's going to produce for you either this year or at the very latest next year, and yet will begin its, re, uh, its, 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 its cycle of coming back year after year after year right away as well. So, what am I talking about? I'm talking about bushes and shrubs. So, some ideas for you might be uh, something like blackberry, raspberry, blueberry, pomegranate, maybe. I, I really don't consider it a tree. It's more of a bush, and you might, in the southern, real southern parts of the United States where it's hot, uh, get into production earlier. I might let you slide by with a fig tree with this one, because a fig tree, generally, you get a couple feet high, you get a few figs off of it. But, in the spirit of things, I think we're getting back into the tree world with those two. But, you know, here's some things that will get into production this year for you. What about strawberries? You know, put some strawberry plants in into a place in the ground or a strawberry pot or a strawberry tube or a hanging basket or someplace where you're going to get those strawberries to come back year after year after year. Moving up into the bushes, uh, a little bit bigger than, like, let's say, blackberries and raspberries typically get. Look at something like gooseberries. Uh, gummy bushes, uh, aronia, uh, seaberry. Pick some stuff like this, some stuff that not everybody has. Remember, it makes a lot of sense to grow things for yourself that you generally can't run down to the grocery store and buy. Because then it's not just about saving money and having a food supply, but even if you have plenty of money and even if you go to the grocery store, now you're providing things to yourself that you can't get. Right? So currant bushes would be another one. Um, wolfberry. Uh, which is goji berry. Uh, and then there's other things that you can do that are perennial in nature. Asparagus, horseradish. Uh, I'm not going to go through a laundry list of them today, but there's just a few ideas to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. But what you're looking for are herbs, shrubs, or vines that are perennial in nature that will get into some level of production within two years for you. Grape vines, kiwi fruit. 
Again, I, I, it amazes me how many people uh, still don't understand. Kiwi fruits are non-tropical. Right? There's a variety of kiwi fruit that's sort of semi-tropical, but there's a tremendous amount of kiwi fruit. It's a lot smaller than the ones you see in the store. They look like a big grape. They have no fur on them, so you don't have to peel them, so I find them preferable. And one female kiwi plant, once established, so you're talking about third year now for this level of production, you produce 100 pounds of fruit a year. So if you put in two female kiwi plants this year and one male, you'll probably get no kiwi this year. You'll probably get a decent little bitty harvest next year. But by the third year, you're looking at somewhere in the range of 150 to 200 pounds of kiwi fruit. And then people say to me, well, what the hell do you do with that much kiwi fruit? Well, if you're a, a home brewer like me, you're probably going to make some really badass kiwi mead, which is a honey and kiwi wine. It's just amazing. Uh, but the other thing you can do with a kiwi fruit dehydrates beautifully. The little ones, you basically cut them in half and dehydrate them. Uh, and they store perfectly. Pick them early when they're hard, put them into uh, your bottom drawer of your refrigerator, and they'll stay hard and good for months, and you take them out as you like, set them on your counter for a couple of days, and they soften up. So there's a lot of ways to store kiwi. Uh, you can make jelly out of them. I don't know how well they freeze. I've never tried it. They, they actually might freeze rather well, especially for things like making slushies and, and stuff like that out of them uh, when they're uh, dehydrated. So I think that this, though, is the time for you to zone in on those perennials, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, currants, whatever, and say, this year I'm going to plant three different perennials. If you plant three perennials, plant two to three plants of each, because one will probably die, all right? And make sure if it's a plant that needs a pollinator, you have that covered as well. Again, with kiwi, you need a female and a male. Now, I, I would, you know, with kiwis, I think two females and one male is plenty. If your male dies, it doesn't need to be really big to serve as a pollinator. So if you lose your male in your first year, you can always plant it your second year, and you'll still uh, probably be okay with that. So that's kind of my uh, my next one on the. Uh, list. Uh, the other thing you need to be doing right now is you might be surprised at how early your planting dates are. You need to right now be estimating your planting dates. The best way to do that is go to farmers, the Farmers Almanac online, uh, stick your zip code in, uh, and you'll get your planting dates. Or some of the, there's like tons of Farmers Almanacs now. Now there's not one online, there's like ten. Uh, some of them just have a chart. And basically it'll say like Dallas, Fort Worth, Atlanta, Georgia, Philadelphia. You pick the city closest to you and it'll give you your estimated last frost date. <clears throat> now let me be clear about what an estimated last frost date means. What that usually means is that, for instance, mine says March 15th. And what that means is that the odds of a frost are less than 50% after March 15th. Or actually, it's freeze dates, not frost dates. Frost is a little tiny bit, freezes, you know, the freeze, or true freeze down to 32 degrees. Um, what that means is there's roughly a 49% chance that I, I could have another frost. So you have to start looking at the weather, doing a little bit of voodoo, forecasting yourself. And a lot of places you'll find planning charts that tell you the odds and how they go down. And when they hit the, like, you know, 80, 90%, you're, you're pretty good with, with planning. But the big reason you need your planning dates isn't so much so you know when to put stuff in the ground. That's important, too. Uh, but, you know, your seed packets tell you that. The nursery can advise you of that uh, if you're buying plants. If you're starting seeds, you need to start looking at things right now. Like, if I'm supposed to start my pepper plants 8 to 12 weeks, okay, before they're set out, March 1st, okay, let's go, April 1st, May 1st is only 8 weeks. 
So most people in the country do not have frost after May 1st, you know, in most instances. So you're a little bit behind with starting pepper plants throughout, let's say, 70% of the country right now. They should have been started already if you're starting your own, and the same with tomato plants. So you need to start looking at planning guides in conjunction with your with your frost aids and say, if I plan on starting my own plants this year, the plants that kind of need that jump start, that have to be started under a grow light or in a greenhouse and then set out uh, once once they're up and running, and I'm not going to buy those plants this year, I'm going to grow them myself, you need to know when you should have started them. And I'll tell you, just from memory, my grandfather, Andrew, um, used to start his tomato plants in mid-February in Pennsylvania. And everybody would tell him, Biff, because that was his nickname, Biff, it's too early for tomato plants. And he'd say, yeah, you're always eating my tomatoes, right? And what he meant by that was his system worked for him. Uh, because by the time he put those plants in the ground, they were really hardy and really going well. And he did that through the use of something called a cold frame which is kind of looks like a little greenhouse built into the ground. And, you know, he was the first person that taught me about things like passive heating, where you would take compost that's right in the middle of uh, its, its breakdown, where it's generating heat, and put a layer of compost at the bottom of your cold frame. And even when it was freezing cold, that cold frame would sit out there under the grapevines. And, of course, all the, the, flat, uh, the leaves were off the grapevines in the summertime. So it would get hit with the sun, and it would also get heat from the... Uh, the, the compost, and it, on a day where you get that rare, you know, called they call it like an Indian summer day, uh, you just go out and lift the, the cold frame lid a little bit with a chain and a pulley so that the heat could get out so that it didn't get too hot for them. And I'll tell you what, by the time we planted tomato plants, he'd start these little bitty seeds in February, and we would usually put, be putting them out in uh, early May. They would be big, thick. I mean, the stalks would be as big around as your thumb. And he did that every year, and he did it from safe seed. And uh, I was, uh, you know, th- that made a lasting impression on me. But if you don't know your frost dates, it's hard to plan that type of event. So start learning your frost dates. And I probably should have told you that a month ago. In fact, I think I did. I didn't do a show dedicated to it, though. Um, the next thing you need to do is set up what I call your fro- your late frost contingency plans. You're going to get the bug this year. If you're listening to this show, you're going to be excited about this, and you're going to jump the gun a little bit. And even if you don't, nature has had a habit in the past few years, even though they tell us it's getting warmer, of it's actually been getting cooler. For about the last six years, the temperatures on our planet, on average, have been going down. And you can think I'm wrong about that, but that's part of climate gate that that came out too. Because we're going through the the minimization of a solar cycle. The sun's been calming down. And with that happening, we have global temperature decline. 2012, we'll start to see them rise again. And then we'll start to see them fall again. It does that over and over and over. And it has for as long as we can remember. And what that means is there's a good potential this year for everything's going good. You've put it out in the garden. The sun's hitting it. It's growing. It's looking great. And all of a sudden, you get a freeze warning. In late April or early May, you're like, what the hell? Well, if you're not prepared for that, it could be a disaster. You can lose all the plants that you have. So what you need to have at a minimum are frost blankets and stakes. I know people go out and they buy the frost blankets, and then they don't realize that when they end up on that day where they have to use them, the blankets themselves can damage the plants. You don't really want them touching the plants too much. You definitely don't want their weight. So you need some sort of stakes. I just use half-inch PVC pipe, 
and I just stick it in the ground uh, straight up, and then I put my frost blankets over top of that and weight them down. But you need to have a way to weight them down prepared. And you actually probably need to go out there and set one up and make sure it's going to work the way you think it does before you end up out there as the cold weather's coming in that night and the wind is blowing and you and your spouse are yelling at each other that the other one's doing it wrong. Ask me how I know, okay? <laughs> so one of the things you can do with frost blankets, it's really easy, is get the real thin kind of lattice strip board. Uh, it's dirt cheap. And get two pieces of it. And basically take your long edge of your frost blanket and lay it on one of those lattice pieces. Take a second piece, put it over top of it like a sandwich. This is just right on the edge. And nail those two pieces or staple those two pieces of lattice together. Okay? Do it on both sides on the long end so that if you and a partner were holding these pieces of wood by the very ends, looking at each other, it would almost look like you're holding a really deep, ill-prepared stretcher, okay? Like some of you would, you know, a litter, like you would carry somebody on a, off a battlefield with, right? What that'll do is that wind won't be a problem, and you'll have two edges that are really easy to put in place, and all you'll have to really weigh down uh, is your, uh, your, your ends, your long ends. And you're still going to want to put some weight or use some staples, like the garden staples, the long ones about a foot long, or, or something like that, or sandbags or uh, bricks or whatever to weigh down your wood strips. But it makes putting them into place so much easier. It also makes putting them away very easy as well. You take them and you just roll them up. And then they just stand in a corner of a shed. It's a great way to do things. I don't remember where I picked up the tip, but I'm glad I did. I'll leave it to you with that. Uh, another plan would be to put in some uh, row covers, uh, maybe put in some hoops and have plastic on hand to basically create a greenhouse effect. But one way or another, especially with your peppers and tomatoes, uh, those are the ones that, that end up really fragile and people jump the gun with the plants. The nurseries have them set out before. I mean, I was at Home Depot yesterday, and they have tomato plants already. If you don't have a, a greenhouse right now, uh, or you don't keep it in the pot and bring it in whenever it's below, you know, 38 degrees, you have no business with tomatoes out right now. It's just, it's just insane. And you, you're probably asking for blight if you put it in the ground and make it survive as wet as it is, nasty as it is right now, and as bad as the blight was last year, you're begging for it to infiltrate your whole garden. So... There's that propensity to jump the gun. So try not to jump the gun. But even when you get into the time where you think you should be planning, have a contingency plan. Because remember, when we invite Murphy into our life, he usually kicks us squarely between the legs, according to Murphy's Law anyway. Um, another good thing to be doing right now is going through your potting equipment. Odds are, if you've been gardening for a number of years and you're kind of a, 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 a scrounge, you know, uh, like I think most survivalists are, we, we hate to throw things away. There's probably in your shed somewhere <clears throat> a whole bunch of little pots. A whole bunch of little pots for starting seeds, and, and even if you've never done it before, that was your plan for them. So go find them right now. Uh, get yourself a five-gallon bucket, fill it up with water, uh, put a little bit, of, like one or two drops of, you know, maybe a tablespoon of chlorine bleach in there, and clean them. Right? Don't get it on any dark clothing or anything like that. You might have to bring it into a garage if you're someplace where it's really cold. You're going to hate me, but it's like, even though it was freezing, not freezing, but it was like 40 degrees and raining yesterday, the sun's out right now, and it looks like it's about 55 degrees outside. Oh, by the way, on Sunday, I was outside working in my garden in the morning with my shirt off. 
Um, so we're having that weird swing right now here. But So for me, I'll just wait for a nice sunny day like today and go out and clean my pots. But you might have to bring yours in, but I suggest you do that now. Get an inventory. Realize what you have. It'll save you money because if you don't do this, you're going to go to the store and you're going to buy them. And then later in the year, as you start kind of you know doing your spring cleaning and pulling things out, you're going to go, holy crap, look at all those pots I had. And if those pots were good enough for the nursery to grow plants in and sell them to you, they're probably good enough for you to grow plants in for yourself. And I want you to think about starting your own seeds this year. And I want you to I want to kind of caution you on some things. Number one, if you try to grow seeds just in a sunny window, it probably won't work. Unless you have a huge south-facing window with no obstructions. It gets hit by the sun from the time it comes up to the time it comes down. It probably ain't going to work. You're going to either need a greenhouse, even a small one outside, or you're going to need a plant light system. I just built a plant light system for about 30 bucks out of some all-thread, some cheap plant lights from Walmart, uh, some fender washers, nuts, and a Sterilite bin. Uh, I did a, there's a post on the forum where somebody was asking about it. I put some pictures of my system in there. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you. But if you're going to start your own plants, you need to think beyond a sunny window, especially tomatoes and peppers. Tomatoes and peppers ain't going to hack it in a sunny window. A lot of folks I see try to start something that should be very easy, and that's lettuce seeds. Lettuce germinates really quick. And you grow it into a nice little plant within maybe two weeks, ready to go, easy to put out in the spring. Uh, it can handle it can handle a light frost with no no problem at all. It's even pretty tolerant of freezes. I've got lettuce in the ground right through the winter. It was buried in ten inches of snow. It's still growing. But they try to start their little lettuce seeds, and they end up with a seed that instead of growing into a little tiny half inch or quarter-inch plant and starts to put out those secondary leaves, they end up with a two-inch-long, white, skinny-looking stalk with two little uh, of the first, you know, non-primary leaves on it, and then it just falls over and dies, and they don't understand why. It didn't get enough light. When your seedlings shoot up to two inches high and look spindly and fall over and die, 90% of the time, it was because they didn't get enough light. Now, there could be some other things that will cause that, Bad soil mixture, not enough water, but generally speaking, when you see that what they're doing is the seed has an energy reserve. And that energy reserve is designed to help that seed push through as much soil debris and shade as it needs to to find some sun. And it's burning 100% of that reserve as fast as it can, trying to find that sunlight before it runs out. And as soon as it runs out, it falls over and dies because it does not get enough light at that point. And even if you give it enough light at that point, it probably won't survive because that long spindly nature of it won't support the growth of the plant. So do be thinking about your lighting as well. Um, the next thing I want you to do, and this is something you can do, again, this is a thing that costs no money. If you've been listening to this show for a year, or if you've gone back and listened to the archives, especially on gardening, you probably know so much more now than you've ever known about gardening and permaculture before. And that's not to pat me on the back. That's because I've learned with you along the way. I've studied every book, every DVD, every video, every person's piece of work that I can find. I've spent money like you wouldn't believe to learn more about this. I've taken courses, and I've passed the knowledge on to you. And I'm still learning, and I'll be learning 10 years from now. But I know a lot more than I knew a year ago. 
it, it, it amazes me. Uh, again, uh, I mentioned this yesterday. A listener is local to the area. Asked me if I'd go up to his property and walk it with him and give him some ideas for what to do this year with his property. And I agreed to do that. And I went out there. And as I was explaining to him what to do, I realized really for the first time myself how much more I knew uh, than I'd ever known before. And what that made me think of over the past couple days is that you have probably done the same thing. And because of what you know, we have a tendency to think about the problems that our property has. And we have a tendency to wish that we had a bigger piece of property or less shade or more slope or less slope or whatever. But if we were to walk our property for the very first time today with, with no preconceptions about it, we would be seeing the solutions. So what I want you to do today is I want you to go out to the furthest corner of your property, and I want you to stand there. This is probably a good project to do after you've drawn your basic sketch, because it'll help you with, uh, with, with seeing this in new eyes. And I want you to stand there, and I just want you to look at your property. The longest view you can create of your backyard, and do this in your front yard as well, side yards too, but back and front are your big ones. Stand there and say to yourself, what do I see that I can make use of? Look at this as though... Today, you had never seen the property before, ever in your life, and somebody said to you, here's a piece of property, grow whatever you want on it. Because you have that now in your own property, but I think a lot of us don't realize it. Stand there and look at the slope of the ground. How does water flow through your property? Look at how the shadows lie. Where are the shadows good? Where are the shadows negative? What can you do with those shadows in the heat of summer? How can you set up things maybe to reflect light so that the, even the stuff in the shadows gets some sunlight because things like ponds reflect light. Okay? But I want you, I, even without me telling you what to do, walk your property with fresh eyes. Look at every square foot of your property. If you have 20 acres, okay, maybe that's not reasonable. Walk your, what, your, what is going to be your zone one again for the first time. You know, the stuff that's closest to the house you're going to do the most with. But if you have a suburban lot that you think of as a disadvantage, you know, that tenth to half acre typical suburbia lot, you should be able to walk within an hour, and it might take an hour to walk a half acre lot. It might take an hour to walk a, uh, you know, a quarter acre lot. Every inch, look at it and just say to yourself, what can I do with this? Every time you say, well, it's no good for, get that thought out of your head. Look for what the positive aspects are. Because it's probably good for something. And a lot of times, it might not be good for growing things, but it still might have a real positive advantage. We'll talk about some of those going forward. That's why I put this one at this point in the show. But I really want you to do that. Walk your property with fresh eyes. This is exactly what we tell people about their websites in the website consulting industry as well. The problem with website owners is you're married to your site. You convince that everything's easy to find because you're on it every day. You put everything there. Of course you know what it is. But you have to get to the front page of your, your website and sit there and pretend you've never been there before and have fresh eyes on it. And that'll lead you to improvements that'll make it more usable for your user base. Well, the same thing with your property. If you walk your property as though you've never been there before, you'll find opportunities that have been there the entire time that you've been missing. The next one I think is one of the most important things that you can do for yourself. I want you to plan one passive water harvesting feature on your property. This could be a rain garden like Bill Wilson did where he basically turned his whole front yard into a rain garden. He has all the water that comes off the front side of his roof channeled into a series 
of basic trenches and, and basically holes. They go all the way through his front yard, and they go off to the side. There's a berm from all the dirt that he removed. It goes all the way down the property line, and the, the excess water flows along that berm back down the property line, seeps into the berm. The berm looked like crap the, when he made it. And when I saw it, I went, no one's going to do that. And a year later, it was beautiful. It was completely filled with herbs and plantings like strawberries and raspberries and blueberries all the way down the side of his property line. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, maybe you're not going to go that far. Maybe it's simply putting in one little micro swale system. Uh, and I can't go deep into swales today because I have too much to cover. But a swale is a ditch on contour. And you think about the way that most people build ditches in this country. We build ditches on a pitch. Ditches are designed to do what? Take water away. So you want the ditch to follow a slight downhill pitch till it goes somewhere where the water can be dumped, like a creek or a lake. Make sense? Or a sewer, because that's how stupid we are in this country. We get rid of our water. A, a, a swale is a ditch exactly level in the bottom of the ditch. It's a ditch on contour. So that when water flows into it, it doesn't go anywhere. It just sits there. And as the ditch fills, you have a downhill side of that ditch, obviously. There's a high side and a low side, because the water's coming from the high side, moving towards the low side, hits the ditch, and just begins to evenly distribute itself throughout the ditch. Now, somewhere along that berm, there's a break in the berm, and that's called a sill. And you ideally want that to be about three feet wide, but you can do this on micro-sized things if you want to. Three feet, it needs to be hard-packed, very hard-packed earth like clay or rock or concrete or anything that's hard enough where it won't wash away. And that sill needs to be just about an inch higher than the top of the, the ditch, not counting the berm, which all the, the, the dirt that comes out of the, out of the ditch goes into a loosely packed berm on the downhill side. What happens is the water flows into the swale, soaks into the berm. You can grow anything you like in that berm. And it also then soaks into the ground, and the water begins to flow downhill underground. You slow the water down, and it's not just the berm, but for you know yards and yards out in front of that ditch, that ground becomes hydrated. When it does overflow and it goes across that level sill, the water flows out gently and slowly and does no erosion damage whatsoever. And if you start at the highest point on your property, you can go downhill and follow it downhill and do that as many times as you like until you run out of property. And eventually you'll rehydrate the whole soil and your watering requirements will go way, way down to almost nothing in many parts of the country. Many parts of the country we see as dry are not deficient in rainfall. They're deficient in the ability of the soil to hold back the water. We go into a forest, we're generally standing on a lake of four to six inches of water underneath our feet. We just don't see it because it's all held in organic matter. But forests are lakes. People don't realize that. That's what they are. They're giant lakes. They're just moist soil lakes instead of standing water lakes. Well, you can create these types of things in your backyard. It could be that. It could be a rain barrel system. I don't care what it is. But I want you to put something in this year that not only harvests the water, but distributes the water or allows it to become available without you doing something to make that happen. In other words, if you do a rain barrel system, then you have to put in something that allows maybe a valve to open and let that rain barrel soak an area once a day. Or it's not passive. It requires your activity. Uh, swale, a small little pond, something like that. Something that harvests water and makes it available to plants 
and extends the irrigation without you having to go out there and fire up the garden hose or switch a valve or turn something on or have your active participation. We want to get you to a point where your garden doesn't require you on a daily basis to thrive because then it becomes a producer versus something consuming your time and making you do lots of work where if you have to do so much work to your garden, eventually you get tired or go on vacation and a lot of your efforts dwindle away. So we need to start that process to do it. One passive water harvesting system this year. Now is also the time to plan or even begin the development of predator, ha- predator habitat this year. We talk a lot about predator habitat in the permaculture world. And a lot of times people think of it as, I'm going to plant flowering herbs and butterfly bushes and, and uh, flowering, maybe some flowering trees in addition to my fruit trees. Uh, I'm going to plant anything with uh, the potential to bring in predatory wasps and pollinating insects, and that's going to create predator habitat. And it does, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's only one type of predator. Throughout most of our country, we have one form or another of frogs. Uh, and I'm, I'm including in that generic term toads. A toad and a frog are different, but for today, frogs. And um, if you have a lot of frogs around, you, you don't have a lot of problems with slugs. Uh, you don't have a lot of problems with a lot of insects. Uh, they're tremendous predators. One little toad living in your backyard does so much good. But we have to understand the toad if we want him to come. We have to understand the frog if we want him to come. What does he need? He needs an abundant food supply. Okay, if you have a garden and you have pest insects, done. He has an abundant food supply. He needs moisture. He needs water. Now, he needs water to breed in, but we'll, he'll get by without that through part of the year once his breeding's done. But he definitely needs water to drink and to stay moist. He can't dry out. He needs cool areas and shade. So if we go into our backyards and we put in a small pond, now we've given him water and we've given him a place to breed. And for the size of your small yard, a frog will cover the distance of that uh, yard in, a, in a, any given night on his own. He won't have any qualms with having to kind of do a hop over to your little pond to do his breeding. He won't need it much for drinking. But his other big needs and what's lacking in most yards is shelter from the heat during the day, a place to go, a place to be. Um, this is why I'm big on if you build decks, not building them flush to the ground, allowing a little gap under there, that's great frog habitat. But even decks get really hot because decks generally aren't shaded unless you're a permaculturist and then you build a trellis over your deck and you put living things on it to shade the deck all day long so your deck's not baking hot. Uh, but many suburban decks are quite hot underneath. Even with some shade, they still tend to get pretty hot under there. You'd think it wouldn't be because of the shade, but the deck itself is a heat sink. That's why when you walk on it, it burns your feet. So it tends to be an area that's not the greatest frog habitat. It's okay. But do you know how to – I don't know. A lot of people probably have seen these. They make these little things called toad houses. And there's these little adorable, cutesy-looking house things with a little door. You know, and it's like a little thing that sits on the ground. And then sometimes they have a picture of a frog, or they make it look like a, a nursery rhyme house or something like that. And they sell for between 20 and 50 bucks. That's a lot of money for one frog house. So as I was looking at these, I said, well, basically what we have here is a little structure for a frog to go in. And I can do better, because a terracotta pot actually breathes better. And it's actually going to be a cooler environment. It's got a perfect little vent hole in the top. And all i got to do is take it. And these are small ones, folks. One sell for a couple dollars. 
You know, once if you put your hands together to make a circle, and, uh, you know, so your thumbs are touching and your fingertips are touching, you pull your hands out till they're about four inches away. You're looking at a, a, a pot with a top about that big. It's probably a four-inch, six-inch uh, terracotta pot. You get a couple dollars at Walmart. And by terracotta, I mean unglazed clay. You don't really want to do with this with plastic. And then you take and you use a chisel to scar a little um, door in the clay. And you just turn your chisel around and smack it, and it pretty much breaks out. It doesn't have to be perfect anyway. You break out a little door hole. Then you go find the shadiest, coolest, dampest parts of your yard, uh, which are going to generally be sheltered by fencing and, and, and trees and bushes. If you have places with overgrowth, Right, and a great thing to do is where those shady spots are, plant ferns. The ferns will love the shade, and it'll grow beautifully in the shade. And then set these little pots, you know, as many as you can make room for throughout your property. Frogs will come. The pond and that, that'll do it. They'll show up. And they will do a great job of protecting your property. And that's just one type of predator habitat that you can create. But it's probably a type of predator habitat you haven't really thought of. Now, how well does this work? Well, I have a friend that did it. He put in a small pond, and he put out, God, this guy has a yard smaller than mine. He must have put out 30 of these little toad houses because he thought they were so cute. In the springtime of the second year, he ended up getting rid of his pond because he had so many toads in his backyard um, that they see, he said the noise of them, you know, chirping at night drove them crazy. Now, I, I love that noise. That wouldn't bother me one bit. That just tells you how effective it is. So, does this guy live out on a farm or something like that? No. He lives right in the middle of suburbia in Mansfield, Texas. He is surrounded by great big, I mean, his house is probably a $400,000 house. He's surrounded by houses like that. Most of the properties around there are mostly concrete. Actually, that's why it works so well for him. He created the perfect habitat in an area where habitat was thin. And you can do other things. I mean, people will say, this is illegal. I just don't know how much trouble you're going to get in over it. And I've never really worried about it. But if I'm taking a walk in Arkansas, and I'm within a couple of miles of my place, and I have to turn something over, and I'm looking around, and I find a, you know, a toad that I know is native to my house as much as he is to a couple of miles away, we'll usually pick him up. We'll bring him home. We'll let him go on the property. We increase the population that way. We create, create genetic diversity that way. Frogs don't have extended family units. You're not breaking up a family. My wife's like, oh, we took him away from his frog family. I'm like, he doesn't care. He's just glad we didn't eat him. And uh, so toads, I think, are an amazing resource. They're just one type of predator that I suggest you consider developing habitat for. Why you spend so much time on this? Why is it so important? Well, you can go out there and use sprays, organic or non, you know, or, or toxic. You can go out there and pick bugs off. You can go out there and companion plant. But you know what? If you create predator habitat, uh, the insects that they prey on, they never develop immunity. Because whether it's a ladybug, a lacewing, or a toad eating you, you don't become immune to that. It doesn't require your attention. It doesn't require reapplication. And every single pest that that toad or lacewing or ladybug or spider eats is one pest you don't have to worry about anymore. It's more than just eliminating the pest or preventing the pest from eating your plant. You're also breaking the life cycle of the pest because that pest is now not available for breeding. So it's a huge step towards improving your, your property. And frogs, a lot of these things, if you're just doing basic permaculture, will happen all by itself. But by providing the structures, and this can be done if you have an abundance of rocks, you can build little huts for your frogs. Trust me, it's a very easy, low-cost step 
uh, that will have lasting rewards for years and years to come. And it's one, and the reason I picked frogs for my example today, I don't care where you live, there's frogs around, and you can create frog habitat. And remember, today, frogs also means toads. The next thing I want you to do, and if there's two feet of snow on the ground right now, it's going to be hard, but as soon as the snow melts, if you have it, or if you don't have snow, walk your property and walk parks and things like that in the next couple of weeks, and look at what's growing right now wildly, and learn from it. If you find things like miner's lettuce growing right now, you might want to dig some up, bring it home, and plant it on your property. If you find any kind of wild edible right now that's growing right now, you might want to let it go to seed, remember where it is, go back and harvest seed for it, or dig it up and try to transplant it, or both. Anything that's growing wild right now would be something you could have been growing wild on your property right now uh, with a little bit of help and cultivation and had available to you versus had to track it down going out and foraging for it. And obviously it's something that in your area grows through the winter. You can also say, well, if miner's lettuce grows right now, regular lettuce would probably do pretty good as well. So if we'll take the time to evaluate what's green when everything else is brown on our property and our surrounding areas, We'll learn a lot about what we could have been growing for the past few months when we were convinced nothing would grow. Even those of you with snow may be very shocked at what happens when that snow melts. Odds are in a lot of areas you look at that white snow and as soon as it melts it doesn't even take a day. You see amidst all the brown these little green things sticking up all over the place. Wild garlic or wild onion. And that tells you that wild garlic or wild onion would have grown well on your property and probably a lot of species of domesticated garlic and onion could have been growing right through the winter. They may not have grown very fast, but they would have grown. And once the snow melt comes and the water really gets down into the ground and the sun warms it up, they go into kind of a growth overdrive cycle and uh, become available for you to harvest relatively quickly, with the exception of garlic. Usually garlic, you're, you're planting actually sometime in like September. You're harvesting it the following year, uh, at least with most species of garlic. There are some stuff that kind of moves a little faster than that. But you can learn so much if you'll just kind of pull back, pause, and take a look at what's already growing around you. And then the last thing that I have for you today is I want you to plan some type of hardscape development for this year. This is another thing, unless the ground's frozen and the snow's on the ground, you can actually start doing it now. So this might be, you know, an amendment to a deck, uh, but that's not really what I had in mind. I want you to create some vertical or overhead space with this hardscape project. So I, I talk about this a lot, but a trellis on a sunny side of your home. So this is a typical uh, suburban trellis that they put over decks and patios. You have your, your posts, your, your vertical posts that are holding up a structure with cross beams, and then going across those cross beams, maybe spaced out an inch apart, you have something that's, you know, you can do any kind of end shape to it to make it look any way you want, make it look Tuscan or whatever. But you're talking about laterals that are running maybe 2x6s or 2x8s uh, or, or whatever size you want based on the structure you're building. And then... I want you to plan to grow something on that hardscape. Grapes, hops, things like that. The reason I'm so big on the trellis is it does so many things. You build, and I'm, I'm not talking about a little trellis. I'm talking about covering your entire patio or putting in a deck where you don't have one and putting the trellis over that entire deck. When we build that, we, we, you know, we think, okay, well, great, now, okay, I have a trellis and provide some shade and I can grow some grapes on it. Great. You can grow grapes, hops, and kiwi fruit on one trellis. Pretty cool. Now, all of those happen to be deciduous, which means in the summertime, once those things are established, that entire roof of that trellis is completely covered in leaves, which means now you don't just have that kind of filtered sunlight coming down to your deck. You have, honest to God, shade. 
Now, since it's plant life and it has a moisture-retaining capability, it's actually cooling as well. Now, if you build the structure high enough with some underpinnings and make a safe place to put a ceiling fan out there for a very low cost of electricity to run that ceiling fan, that could even be run completely passively with solar. One ceiling fan takes very little energy to run. Probably not worth it, but it could be a little learning project if you wanted it to be. A couple ceiling fans out there, maybe even a misting system for the hottest parts of the day. You have a bonafide outdoor room that's naturally air-conditioned. Cool, huh? But that cool space on the sunny side of your home is now preventing a great deal of heat energy from radiating into your home. So now we're, how, we're not just creating an outdoor space that's cool, we're passively cooling our home. Or if we're not cooling it, we're preventing some of the heat from getting in, so we're increasing the efficiency of the internal cooling unit. Now you say, but the problem with that is I create all this shade, I want the sun hitting my house in the winter. Remember we started out with the map, and the sun goes lower in the sky in the winter? Well, when the sun's lower in the sky, it comes underneath the main structure and hits the side of the house. Plus, what happens when the, for deciduous plants, when winter comes, all their leaves fall off. So all that light that couldn't get through, now can get through. So now we're actually allowing the natural heat to warm our home in the wintertime. Plus, we're producing food. And we're taking space that's probably been wasted up till now, because let's face it, if you have a deck or a porch, and there's nothing over top of it, then nothing's growing up there. You also have the ability to grow things up sidewalls that way, way as well. And we create an aesthetically pleasing structure, and it's a lot less expensive than putting in a new deck. Because putting in an overhead structure like that is relatively inexpensive, and it's a good uh, carpenter project to begin with. It's not that hard to do. As long as you can use a saw, a screw gun, dig some holes maybe if you're not going to mount it straight to a deck, mix a little bit of concrete, and use a level, you pretty much can go look at one and figure out what to do and build it for yourself. And remember, unlike the contractor that if it takes him three weeks instead of one, loses his shirt, it doesn't matter if it takes you three weeks. Put that sweat, sweat equity in. So now the structure's done more. It's not just what it functionally does for you. Now it's become a learning tool. See, permaculture is all about stacking function. So not only do you stack plants so that we have different layers of plants so that we get more production out of one small area, we stack functionality. And sometimes the functionality is the very process of creating it educates us, teaches us, and makes us better prepared to deal with any situation that we have to deal with. Because if we had a major disaster, major disaster, the big one, rebuilding society, the guy that can swing a hammer well, and build something, the lady that can construct something, has an added value to society. Much more than your ability to work a spreadsheet in that scenario. So you're gaining the skill set. That's stacking function. That's stacking form. The last suggestion that I have for you is not on my show notes list, but I have to end with this. Take a walk in the woods. Take a walk in the forest. Take a new walk in the forest. Just like you're going to walk your property anew. Walk the forest anew. What Jeff Lawton says is when you're inside the forest, you're inside the teacher. It may be hard to believe, but every single thing I've talked to you today about is learned from a forest. The forest does every single thing I've talked about today naturally. 
The forest understands energy patterns and grows according to them. So that sketch you made, the forest does it all by itself. It stacks its canopy. It creates edges. It allows things to grow that are good at blocking wind. And it puts plants that need shade behind plants. It does it all completely naturally. We learn to emulate it and even improve upon it by observing it. When we look at something like um, edible perennials, the forest grows them. It spreads them through the wildlife that live there, creating predator habitat. The forest has plenty of predators. There's plenty of frogs out there. Do you notice that the forest never tills the soil? Did you hear me today say dig? I didn't say dig one time. But the forest has creatures that dig the soil because it puts down thick layers of organic matter and worms and all the other little things are constantly tilling the soil. So take a walk in the forest. In the cold snow, in the warm sun, take walks in the forest throughout the year. Even if you, if you live in a really urban area and you don't really have a true forest, take a walk in a park that has some wild areas. Get off the trail. Get out into the dirt. Stand and just observe. And so many things will start to take shape for you. And you'll start to understand that it's not always a tree that's a canopy. Sometimes your fence on the right side of your property is like the tall trees, and you plant things in front of it just as though there were trees behind them. Now, you have to supplement the organic matter, but the structures are the same. You start to see patterns and the repeat of patterns. Once you do that, once you do that, you can create living ecosystems that produce abundance anywhere. And with that, I will wrap up today, but I want you to take a new look at your yard Take a new look at the forest and start planning how you can provide food for yourself and your family through passive systems from today for the rest of your life. And every year, the production should get higher and your workload should go down. If you're not doing it that way, you're not doing it right. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.